How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life! I'll be back. There's a fish wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! I'm sorry, Ben. I'm afraid I can't do that. Well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shot, where we uh, explore the stories behind your favorite cult and genre movies. Mm-hmm. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. Hey, I'm co-host Justin Bishop, trying to remember how to podcast. That's because it's been a minute. My name is Detective Todd A. Davis, working the 24-hour shift out of podcasting. This is my workshop, the part of the internet that everybody knows about, but that nobody wants to see. Where the tragedies are deeper, the ecstasy's wilder, and the crime rate consistently higher than anywhere else. Cinema Shock. Roulette episode. My beat. What the fuck is going on right now? I have no idea. I have no idea. Oh, come on! (laughs) Yeah, anyway, what Todd mentioned in his strange intro that we are... This is a Cinema Shock roulette episode. Uh, This is our second Cinema Shock roulette episode where we just randomly leave the choice of the movie up to the, the movie gods completely random and this week, the movie gods chose, uh, of course, Little Shop of Horror. So it's going to be fun because this is a movie that I love. I, I adore Little Shop of Horrors. It's like a desert island movie for me. It's one of those. You, you have those like comfort movies that you can just throw on at any time. And even if you don't have time to watch the whole thing, you know, it's just nice to kind of have it on in the background while you're doing the dishes or laundry or something. And you just like never get tired of it. That's oh, yeah. that's what this movie is for me nice nice it's a good choice yeah and and the guy who directed it frank oz you know he's directed a lot of good stuff i just i watched bowfinger recently for the first time in years and it's still really great uh and and a lot of those films that he's directed though they don't really fit in with the types of movies that we usually cover here on the podcast and there are some others as we discussed in our preview uh, to this episode that might be better left for a series about one of Oz's closest collaborators, Jim Henson. So even mm. though he, you know, they may have been directed by Oz, they kind of fit better with a Jim Henson series. Uh, so there are some other Frank Oz movies that I'm sure at some point way down the road, we, we might, you know, hit on. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people, they think of Frank Oz, they think of his legacy and they think, you know, it's probably true that the biggest legacy that he'll ever leave on the film world or the, the pop culture world is stuff like his performances of characters like Miss Piggy and Fozzie Bear and Cookie Monster and Yoda, you know. But I think that his the fact that he directed this movie should also be in consideration of that. Of, of all the movies he's directed, I think this is the most iconic. And the movie oh, we're talking Kirby, about is, I want to of fuck course, Kermit the Frog. <laughs> yes, waka waka. <laughs> <laughs> this is very weird that was a that was an amalgamation it was uh anyway the movie we're talking about this week is little shop of horrors it all began in this little shop oh damn roses where strange as it seems something extraordinary happened little shop of horrors a story about a boy a girl a florist. I'm 
I don't care if my FBI agent sees it. I'm looking it up right now. So, the, so, the, so the plant with the lips movies. is actually just sideways, and so, uh, the, yeah, okay, never mind. Oh, 100 percent, 1987. Oh, uh, the buried like next year. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Jamie Summers, Blondie. Yeah, Blond- Nikki the band, Knights the band Blondie. It, anyway. it does. Did, IMDb has. Did you know? Spoofs the Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, it so, exists. Yes, it exists. Good to know. Good to know this. We're getting into this film's legacy already <laughs> early on in the, sh- in the that's show. That's for the yeah. end. Sorry. <laughs> well, like all, like like many things in the genre world, the genre film world often do. The story of Little Shop of Horrors starts with who else but Roger Corman. So in 1959, Roger Corman, uh, it, we, we bring up this guy a lot. Uh, all, th- all roads go back to Roger Corman in some way or the other, it feels <laughs> like. Uh, but in 1959, Roger Corman directed a film starring Dick Miller called A Bucket of Blood. Uh, have you guys seen that? It's a, this horror comedy written by Charles B. Griffith. It's really, it's really fun, really funny. Nice. Uh, so after that film was completed, Corman was offered access to the sets that had been built for it, but there was a catch. He had them for about two days before they were set to be torn down. So he did what any penny-pinching producer would, uh, especially with Roger Corman. He decided he'd use those two days to shoot an entirely new movie. He didn't have a script or anything. He didn't have a movie planned. He's just like, hey, I've got sets for a couple of days. Let's make a movie with them. Why not? We can. He was a wow. little reluctant to do another comedy because Bucket of Blood had not performed particularly well at the box office. Uh, But he and Griffith, they started batting around ideas. Uh, They were like bar hopping and drinking. And as they drank, they kept coming up with like new ideas, (laughs) trying to come up with what kind of movie they could shoot. And they eventually landed on the story of a man-eating plant. Uh, The screenplay, which was written over the weekend under the title The Passionate People Eater, would later become The Little Shop of Horrors. And that original film... It was created on an incredibly low budget of about $28,000. I've seen it listed as $15,000 somewhere, but $28,000 is what Corman says. Uh, And the cast included a lot of the stock actors that would often appear in Corman's productions, including Charles B. Griffith himself and smaller, uh, a few smaller roles. I think he actually did the plants voice, if I'm not mistaken. Production consisted of three days of cast rehearsals, followed by two days and one night of principal photography. Wow. That's it. 
Holy crap. <laughs> so I know that, but I read this one book called Comedy Horror Films, The Chronological History by oh. Bruce Hallenbeck. And uh, so like Little Shop, the OG, it's often called the, the best film that was ever shot in two days. But Corman completely denies all of that, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> he says even he cannot shoot a film that fast. Uh, Charles B. Griffith said, Basically, what happened is after they were wrapping Bucket of Blood, they were they were thinking about doing a follow up to Bucket of Blood. And so they were bar hopping, just like what Justin was talking about. And that he and Roger Corman were discussing ideas. And it started with the idea of gluttony. And the hero was going to be a salad chef in a restaurant who ends up cooking the customers. But they decided because of the production code that that wouldn't let that happen. So at one point, Griffith said, what about just a plant that eats people? And he said, by that time, they were both hammered. And Roger was like, hell yeah, okay, that's great. Let's do that. <laughs> and uh, now the rumor about this being on the set of Bucket of Blood is is all over the place because I kept seeing it in everything I, I read. But in the book, in that book, Corman says that they couldn't remember what movie set this was, but just that the manager or producer studio where American International shot their stuff called him and said, we've got unused stuff here if you want to use it. Uh, the movie it's on is about to wrap. And so he was kind of tempted, but with thinking it over, he had only like a limited amount of time. And his brother, Gene, met him. Uh, Gene's a producer, too, for anybody who doesn't know, did like Night of the Blood Beast and a bunch of stuff. He made a bet with him and said, I bet you can't come up with an idea for this set. And they looked at it and it was a large office. He liked that. Uh, and so he used the idea they had talked about before, turned it into a flower shop and decided to get going with it. Uh, the real reason he says they shot it so fast actually was because he says, I'm Roger Corman, and I like to save money. On January 1st, 1960, new rules were about to go into place that were going to allow actors to be paid residuals from the movies they were in. And usually just the producers got residuals, and now I'm going to have to split it with everybody. <laughs> so we got it all done the last week of December in 1959. And uh, so that's the whole reason, just so he didn't have to pay the actors residuals. <laughs> so he said they rehearsed for three days, shot it in two days, and one night over the weekend. He says the secret that nobody ever talks about, though, is he did have to bring people back in for reshoots for weeks uh, after. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, so, so it did shoot in two days. There were just some some reshoots later, as there often are. Yeah, he just so. got out of. Uh, he was he was working to get out. He was working to make money off his brother in a bet, and working to not have to pay actors residuals. How much was the bet for? I wonder. I don't know. Say? I did not say. <laughs> the sta it's the standard amount. Oh, okay. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The, the <laughs> usual usual bet. <laughs> so one of the most notable things about this film other than the, the musical that it inspired of course is the appearance of jack nicholson in an early role uh he plays the um the the patient at the dentist the one that bill murray plays in the in the remake yes uh did you did you have a chance to uh re-watch this at all gary before uh the the original yeah yeah the original i saw it not too long ago because it was on joe bob yeah uh, yeah that's the last time i saw it as well when he had roger yeah. corman on there i was i was hoping to watch it again but i, I never got around to it this time when the movie was released uh, it performed fairly well uh, partially because it was on a double bill with mario bava's black sunday which 
Joe Bob showed like two weeks ago. <laughs> and that film's success led to positive word of mouth for Little Shop of Horror. So it actually did really well by being the B movie to a more successful movie. Unfortunately, Corman viewed the film as sort of a throwaway and he, he didn't really foresee it having much financial prospect effort after its initial theatrical run. So he never bothered copywriting it, which resulted in the film entering the public domain. So cut to about 22 years later, you've got a couple of young writers named Alan Minkin and Howard Ashman, and they they use this film as the basis for a, a stage musical. Now, Minkin and Ashman, uh, if you recognize those names, you're probably a fan of Disney movies of the early 90s because they would later become best known for their work with Disney, where they wrote songs for films in the, the like early 90s renaissance. They basically helped bring Disney back to life, the animation department, because they wrote songs for The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. But by the t- by, at the time that they were making Little Shop, they were still pretty young. They were up-and-comers. They were in their early 30s. They had worked separately in the musical theater world for a few years, uh, but had really had their breakthrough when they teamed up for the first time with the musical adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. That musical was a modest success. It did pretty well off-Broadway. Off when it tried to go to a bigger theater, it didn't do as well. Uh, but it was their next musical that really cemented their careers. Uh, they wrote Little Shop of Horrors for a cast of only nine performers, including a puppeteer. They had been looking for something to do that was a little bit different because they were a little bit disappointed in their their Kurt Vonnegut adaptation about in the way that it didn't do as well when it moved to a bigger theater. So they kind of just wanted to do something silly and fun. And Howard Ashman had grown up watching the original Little Shop of Horrors on like late night TV. He saw it when he was like 14 years old. Alan Minkin had never seen it. So Howard Ashman actually showed it to him for the first time. And, and he immediately like got kind of a light bulb over his head because the movie is very, very sixties. So he kind of got this idea of making the music in the style of, you know, of the sixties and it all kind of came together. And over the course of about eight months, they wrote the musical. The musical opened off, off Broadway in the WPA theater in 1982. That's a very small theater, like 98 seats, I think very, very small. Uh, and it was successful enough to move to the off-Broadway Orpheum Theater, which was much, much bigger in the East Village of Manhattan, where it ran for five years, setting the box office record for highest grossing off-Broadway show of all time. Wow. I, I think a lot of these movies, you don't think about it, but maybe this is a market we could get into. You could probably turn a lot of these movies into stage productions. Yeah. They well, don't go like everywhere. And this movie seems like perfect for this. Because it's only yeah. set in a couple of locations. And there's something about their style of songwriting as well that just works really well. I mean, even several of the Disney movies that they wrote music for have been turned into stage productions. And there's a reason for that. Like Beauty and the Beast is the most Broadway thing that Disney has ever produced. Mm. You know, so mm. people don't get enough credit for this. I guess like maybe, you know, these guys names. You remember people like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, but these guys wrote some bangers in their day, too. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, between the Little Shop songs and Little Mermaid. And yeah, I still get like under the sea in my head. I know it's great. It's a great song. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so once it moved to off Broadway, one of the producers of that show, which was much bigger. So it had a much bigger budget. They brought in some additional producers. One of those was a guy named David Geffen. Uh, David Geffen, I'm sure you recognize his name. Uh, yeah. He started his career in the music industry at his own record company, Asylum Records, and then Geffen Records, which was part of the reason they wanted to 
team up with him because they knew they'd get a really good cast recording nice. of the show out of this. Yeah. Uh, but in the early eighties, he was looking to make a jump into feature filmmaking. And in 1982, he founded the Geffen Film Company, and their first film was Robert Towns' Personal Best, which did horrible at the box office. It was a big flop. But in August of 1984, they had a huge hit with the release of Risky Business, the Tom Cruise movie, made on a very low budget, made a ton of money. And that basically set the Geffen Film Company on their course. Another movie with a a very famous musical scene. Not one written by them, but I guess. Uh, Iconic, though. It is iconic. Tom Cruise in his undies. How can it not be? (laughs) (laughs) So after Little Shop's years-long run off Broadway, Geffen began to kind of explore the idea of adapting the show into a feature film. When the film's development began, the plans were initially to have Steven Spielberg serve as executive producer with Martin Scorsese as the director who had planned (laughs) on shooting the film in 3D. Oh, wow. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Imagine that alternate universe where that exists. Yeah, Um, jeez. That Unfortunately, that version of the production was stalled when Charles B. Griffith, the original screenwriter for, for the original film, he filed a lawsuit against it, which was settled out of court. And because it was the- all it was because there was a scene where Seymour Curb stops Mr. Mushnick and, <laughs> <laughs> it was, and then feeds him to the plant. So this is rough. <laughs> Marty is he means business. But it was. um I think they they settled that out of court quickly because they were already starting to develop this film and they had the rights to it, but they wanted to move it forward quickly and they didn't want to get stuck in court for months at a time. So they just paid Charles B. Griffith some money so they can move on. Uh, But by the time it moved on, Scorsese had dropped out and gone on to other things. Uh, John Landis was reportedly attached to the project for a while, but when he ended up passing on it, uh, Geffen offered the project to Frank Oz, who was finishing up work on The Muppets Take Manhattan at that time. The Muppets Take Manhattan was Oz's solo directing debut, although two years earlier, he had co-directed The Dark Crystal alongside Jim Henson. So this was, I guess this was technically his third movie, but it was his second as a solo director. Although I have to imagine Jim Henson had a lot of input on the Muppet Snake Man hat. Yeah. yeah. I would would say so. And and, and, and Oz always gives a lot of credit. I was literally right before we recorded listening to an interview with him where he was just talking about how without Jim Henson, this movie would have never happened either. Like he he credits Jim Henson with so much that just what he learned from him. Here's an interesting thing that I actually just found out today. when I was, I was just kind of reading some stuff. I actually found a, a, a Playbill article from 1982 about the original Broadway show, an interview with Ashman and Minkin. Oh, wow. And they're actually talking about how on the original stage production, when they needed to build the, the puppet, the plant, they got in touch with a guy named Martin Robinson, who was a puppeteer. And he actually got his start working on the Muppets as well. And he played Mr. Snuffleupagus on Sesame Street. Oh, no. And this is a guy who, so the guy who created the puppet for the original stage production was actually a a, a Henson alum as well. And he had like, they they told him about this. And he's like, oh, man, that was like my favorite movie when I was a kid. And he actually already had sketches of what the plant would look like that he had just worked on for fun over the years. Oh, wow. (laughs) Did you ever hear the theory that Snuffleupagus was a figment of Big Bird's imagination? Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I've never heard his that. imaginary friend. Yeah, yeah, that's really? fucked up, right? Like Sesame Street's deep. Like it just gets into, <laughs> or, like, you know. Besides the fact that there's a giant ass bird talking to kids, nobody ever talks to Snuffleupagus except for Big Bird. Yeah, Big Bird uh, has um, 
disassociative personality disorder, I think. Yeah, <laughs> they're inclusive. <laughs> so Oz had Frank Oz had started working with Jim Henson way back in 1963 when he was 19 years old. The two had met as teenagers working as puppeteers at the Children's Fairyland of Oakland. And then when Henson left for New York to work on the Muppets, he invited Frank Oz to come along with him. So he so Oz was basically with the Muppets from the beginning. And the characters that he voiced, I, I mentioned a couple of them before, but they included Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, Animal, Sam the Eagle. Then on Sesame Street, he did Grover, Cookie Monster, and Bert. And of course, he is very well known for genre movie fans as the performer and the voice of Yoda in the Star Wars film. When he was offered Little Shop of Horrors, uh, he initially rejected it, actually, because he had read the screenplay, which was written by Howard Ashman, and he had gone to see the off-Broadway show. He enjoyed it, but he didn't see a cinematic way of telling the story because it was very stage-bound. But a few weeks later, it kind of clicked in his head that he, he kind of like suddenly could envision a cinematic way to tell the story. So we got back in touch with Geffen and accepted the gig. According to Oz, like the big thing was the three girls. Yeah, uh, the Greek chorus. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, they got him back, I guess. Uh, he said initially it just felt like there was too much going on with the way the stage worked. And he didn't feel like there was, like Justin said, the cinematic way of making it all work. But then he realized one day just with the three girls, he was thinking about them. And on stage, they just kind of popped in from stage left and stage right and then left again. And he said, but, you know, like they're not a part of anything else. Uh, his quote, bebop anywhere all over the place. So he kind of started seeing them as like these, I don't know, guides or something. They could just like pop in and walk you right. from scene to scene and uh, just be anywhere at, at any point. Uh, he even said he actually wanted to have like an aura of light coming off of them originally when he was doing the movie, but they just didn't couldn't find a way to make that happen without it looking cheesy. Uh, but he actually uses some really good effect in the beginning. Like I think uh, the opening, if you watch the commentary, talks about like the 16 cuts that are just in the first like few minutes of the opening and uh, taking you through everything, like starting in space, then down to Skid Row. You see the lightning flash. The girls appear. It's pouring rain. They don't get wet. And then they walk through every like set piece, basically, yeah. uh, without anybody else acknowledging them. So it's just showing you everything you need to know and everything you need to see all at once to know like what's happening here. Yeah, which is a really old um, kind of trick when it comes to stage shows. I mean, I, I, I reference them as the Greek chorus. Yeah, uh, that that's what I mean, that's basically what they are. Like, if you've going back to Disney, if you've seen Hercules, there's a Greek chorus in that. You know, uh, these three singers who are kind of the almost the narrators of the whole affair. But that that's a tradition going back for as long as I. I mean, I'm I'm no historian when it comes to you know stage productions, musicals, plays, things like that. But uh, for, for centuries, that's been kind of a tradition in, in stage-bound storytelling. Well, you even see it with, uh, you know, more modern takes with, you know, the disembodied narrator or even, you know, in minimalistic forms, the paragraph at the beginning of, of something to kind of set the stage. But you have in this as well. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, we mentioned Star Wars, uh, 3PO and R2-D2 are considered the Greek chorus because yeah. we see a lot of the story through their eyes. Through them, yeah. So after he figures this out and figures out a, the way that he's going to approach the story, Frank Oz works for about a month and a half reworking the script, uh, restructuring it to be a little less stage bound. Uh, he took some songs out, put some other songs in. 
uh, songs that had maybe been cut from the original stage version when Ashman wrote the screenplay. And when he showed his restructured script to Geffen and Ashman, they, they liked the changes that he made. Uh, because he didn't really fundamentally change anything. He didn't change any of the dialogue, didn't change the story. He just sort of reworked it to where, in a way that he thought would work better as a film. Mm. And he credits, he credits Ashman a lot, like in a, in a bunch of interviews you see, like uh, just especially including like the tone of the thing. He said, you know, he, he even asked Ashman early on for advice and the advice was just, don't be subtle, just go for it that's the idea for the play. And that should be the idea for this. I think this is a quote for maybe he didn't intend for the opening credits to be over that opening number, but this was part of Ashman's suggestion that they had like all this set up. And then Ashman's just like, just don't wait, just start off singing. Let everybody know this is a musical right at the beginning. Just get it going. And he said, uh, Oz liked getting the audience to know right from the jump. And then he liked the girls already. Like I mentioned, and he said all in that one opening scene, Ashman helped him out with that, that. This is a musical. We've got no rules. Anything can happen. You know, you see these like miracle narrator people, the Greek chorus, like we were talking about. He said he even asked Ashman if he liked to help him. But Ashman told him no at first. And he said, uh, Oz said, quote, I understand where he was coming from. There's a lot of musical deletant directors out there. But later on, he saw that I actually knew what I was talking about because I grew up with musical comedy. And when he realized I had some depth in me from that moment on, he was always there for me. He said such was his willfulness to help that he wrote Supper Time and Mean Green Mother from Outer Space for him. Of course, I guess we'll talk about, but that was the first song with profanity to ever win an Oscar nomination. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> nice. So with this reworked script, in place, the movie was officially ready to be made. But first, of course, we need a cast. So cast in the lead role of Seymour was Rick Moranis. Uh, Rick Moranis, uh, fairly well known at the time. He'd made his name on Canadian television, most notably as a cast member of SCTV, Second City Television. You know, a lot of great comedians came from there from that era. Uh, he'd also already appeared in Strange Brew alongside his SCTV co-star Dave Thomas. And of course, in 1984, he'd appeared in Ghostbusters as Louis Tully, a.k.a. the Key Master. Uh, Moranis was Geffen's first choice for the role, uh, but there, there was one problem, and that was that Frank Oz had never heard of him. Uh, Frank Oz, he'd spent the majority of the last decade working in London. That's where they made the uh, the Dark Crystal and the Muppet movies. Uh, so he had never seen Moranis's work on SCTV. Not sure how he never saw Ghostbusters, but or maybe Ghostbusters wasn't out by the time they were talking about him. I'm not really sure what the timeline is on that. I'm not sure, but uh, but I'm glad that they that Geffen talked him into it uh, because I think casting Moranis is first of all, I think this is Rick Moranis's best role. Uh, I think this is like his most iconic role to me. Uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is way up there, of course. But to me, this is like the quintessential Rick Moranis role. And, and I do think that casting him was sort of a, an act of genius uh, because he is so likable. Everyone loves Rick Moranis. Who doesn't like Rick Moranis? You know, he's very right. relatable, very everyman. <laughs> and, and by casting someone like that in this role, you he continues to be sympathetic to audiences, even when he's doing horrible things. I was going to say, even as a murderer, <laughs> you're like, well, <laughs> yeah, like, right. Silly bastard. Yeah, he's he's feeding people to a man-eating plant just to get ahead in life, but you still root for him. And that you couldn't do that with just any actor, you know? Yeah. Uh, you have to have someone that's as likable as Rick Moranis in the role. I said that that was like 
Gavin's big thing. Like he really wanted Rick Moranis and Oz was just like, fine. He said it wasn't until after they even hired him, though, that anybody thought to ask, oh, hey, by the way, can he sing? Yeah, and, right. And Gavin was like, I don't know. <laughs> luckily, <laughs> he does sing very well. So Yeah, they were like, luckily, he was, it turns out he was a huge fan of the style of music, too, that yeah. they use. So it was a Does nice Rick Moranis blessing. have a country music album? That it, he, he oh, I out, think like, that's right. Yeah, like after like, he retired from acting, he put out a country music I album. Do you feel like that's? Are you serious? He really I, did. I, I think he did. Oh wow! <laughs> I'm pretty sure he did. <laughs> uh, so, two-time Academy Award nominee Vincent Gardenia played the role of Mr. Mushnick, the co-owner of the the plant shop or the owner of the plant shop where Seymour works. Uh, and in the film's co-lead, and of course Seymour's romantic interest interest of audrey an actress by the name of ellen green was cast now green by was the not way the... just before you keep going i looked it up he does have a, an album called agoraphobic cowboy <laughs> and if you want to buy Amazing. it on amazon right now like the actual physical cd it's 70 dollars. i'm not gonna do that oh jesus <laughs> so <laughs> anyway Go ahead. So, so ellen green was not the studio's first choice uh, they wanted a big name they wanted um they wanted cindy lopper initially who turned it down uh, there was also rumors that barbara streisand was offered the role as well although frank oz is a little iffy on whether or not that actually happened uh, but green was always oz's number one pick for the role she had been the originator of the role in the off-broadway production she basically made a name for herself doing it and oz said that he could not imagine any other audrey he mm-hmm. actually had to fight to get her in the role because geffen didn't want her he wanted somebody with like name power you know but Mm -hmm. oz convinced him to allow her to have a screen test with moranis and when geffen watched the screen test he was immediately sold and green got the part so ellen green she had uh she's most you're not going to see her in a lot of movies Uh, she's mostly a stage actress uh even after this Uh, she had begun her career as a nightclub singer in her native new york city before moving into musical theater her first starring role on stage was in an unsuccessful Broadway show called Rachel Lily Rosenblum and Don't You Ever Forget It, which had seven preview shows, but then never officially opened. Her next starring role was so in the it was forgotten. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's all we have time for on the show today, everybody. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> her, uh, her next starring role was in the off-Broadway production of In the in the Boom Boom Room, where she worked under the uh, legendary Broadway producer and director Joseph Papp. She continued to work with Papp afterwards, where she worked with him on his New York Shakespeare Festival. And then in 1977, she was nominated for a Tony Award for her work in the Three Penny Opera. So she's really uh, kind of an up-and-comer in the late 70s, early 80s in Broadway and off-Broadway. And it was during this time that she formed a close relationship with the WPA Theater, that off-off-Broadway show, uh, a theater that we mentioned earlier, which is where she met Howard Ashman and Alan Minkin, who cast her in Little Shop of Horrors. And of course, the rest is history. She was the original Audrey, and she will, nobody else could ever fill those shoes, in my right. opinion. I did, I, did not. I, I looked her up. I did see, because I was like, she's got such a unique sound and the whole thing. And I was just like, what else has she been in? And, I, and the only thing that really jumped out at me, just as you know, I was going through you know, looking for the. We know why Todd me. looked her up. no but the one thing that jumped out at me was she was matilda's mother in uh leon the professional Uh, yeah she's the one sitting in the bathtub with the headphones on like snapping her fingers when gary oldman blows her away with a shotgun wow (laughs) yeah that's her (laughs) (laughs) mama turn uh, uh, baby turn that down mama's got a headache that's her 
<laughs> like one line. I had this no is, idea. This is easy for Oz too, because the weird part about this movie is like getting the tone right. I think, and mm, and so yeah. like she automatically gets it. She doesn't have to like. She's been doing it for five, six years at this point. You know? No right. exploring the character for her. She's just right. ready to go. Other supporting roles in the film were filled by a who's who of comedic actors at the time. Big names, like you've got Bill Murray playing the masochistic dental patient, uh, that role that was originated by Jack Nicholson in Corman's film, and a character that had actually been cut out of the stage musical, but re-included by Frank Oz. He liked that character, wanted to bring it back. Uh, And Murray apparently improvised all of his dialogue in the film, 100% improvised. Uh, this is another wow. case where I think that casting Murray is is kind of brilliant because not just anyone could do this because uh, he, he was a big star. He was hot off the success of Ghostbusters. Uh, and this is the type of role that really only works if you've got a well-known actor there because otherwise it just seems like this weird tangent that should probably be a deleted scene, like cut out of the film if you don't have somebody like Bill Murray in the role. But... With Bill Murray in there, it becomes, in my opinion, one of the all-time greatest single scene roles in movie history. Like there aren't yeah, a lot of them that awesome. were, somebody can have that much impact and be that memorable and literally only be in one scene in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, him with Steve Martin. Like yeah. 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 I mean, <laughs> so so yeah, for the, the dentist himself is Steve Martin. Uh Martin filmed his part in about six weeks uh, performing one of the catchiest songs in the film i think uh, and also contributed a lot of ideas about his character like when he socks the nurse in the face the way he plays the character he plays it somewhere between elvis and satan yeah uh, which is not at all how the character was portrayed in the original film or even in the stage play that was something that martin brought to the role and he is i think one of the film's most memorable characters uh despite only having a couple of scenes and a single musical number, although it is a great musical number. Uh, and it's a great character anyway, because it's so weird. It's it's like the leather jacket with the white smock on underneath, you know, riding the motorcycle. He's into S&M, which is a really weird uh, yeah. <laughs> little uh, detail that they put into this. And and, and the musical number is great. The I'll Be a Dentist song is, it will get, it, it is an earworm. Uh, and the whole sequence, the way it shot, like that one moment where it shot from the inside of the mouth, you know, yes. uh, which is a great moment that uh, Oz doesn't do a lot of like really showy stuff like that throughout the film, mm-hmm. which I think is good because it makes it when it does happen, you remember it because mm-hmm. it's not stuff like that's not happening all the time. Right. I just love I love that song. Th- that scene with Bill Murray and Steve Martin, I think in the commentary, Oz said they shot like 32 takes of that and they would just go on for as long as they could go. And you know, they just trimmed out stuff. He yeah. said, there's just like, they're, they, they would, would go for the forever. Room floor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like all of that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he said, he said that they just, it was finally like that 32nd one that they had the ending that he liked, uh, at least with like how they would end the scene with him walking out and like him having the tool in his pocket and <laughs> yeah. that whole thing. <laughs> Fuck, fucking nuts to think about those two guys. But yeah, he just, he just let them go. Just let them go. I mean, why wouldn't you? Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you've also got John Candy in a small role as Wink Wilkinson, the DJ yes. for WSKID, yes. who interviews Seymour, uh, you know, about the, the we- I love his role in that. Uh, Jim Belushi plays Patrick Martin, the licensing and marketing executive from World Botanical Enterprises, who offers Seymour a proposal to sell Audrey II's worldwide. Uh, that role, Patrick Martin, was originally played by Paul Dooley, uh, but 
he was unavailable for reshoots when the time came. So the role was recast with Belushi. But if you, if you watch the director's cut of the film, which we'll talk about later, uh, it's, it's Paul Dooley that you'll actually see in this. Huh. And to, to his credit too, he said that uh, the John Candy part, that was uh, obviously that was uh, uh, Rick's friend. So yeah, he of was course. easy to get. Fellow and, SCTV uh, guy. Yeah. 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 So he, uh, he liked sticking to the stage play, but with just like with Murray and Martin that Candy like pretty much just came in and ad-libbed his whole thing too. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've also got Christopher Guest in a very small role as the he's credited as first customer. He's the first person to notice Audrey too in the shop window. You know, he ends up buying a hundred dollars worth of roses. Uh, Christopher that, um, Guest, of course, is the director of uh, you know a Mighty Wind and Best in Show. He was a, a one third of Spinal Tap. You know, legendary comedy actor and director himself. Yeah. You talk about like the tone of things, like I was saying, like Audrey, you know, Ellen Green doesn't have to like get used to it, but uh, Oz is saying that. Uh, Christopher Guest was like totally unprepared for this. Like he came in to act, he was ready to go. And it took him like several takes to realize how cartoony everyone was right. actually yeah. acting. So he was coming in very normal with his line when he walked in. Hi. And, uh, yeah. But then he Such said he probably walked player. in and he like watched them perform. And he was like, Oh, y'all are really flying in here. So he like <laughs> comes in with that super ridiculous version. They were and like, he okay, definitely that's it. nails it. And of course, uh, we have to mention the great Levi Stubbs as the voice of Audrey too. Uh, Stubbs was best known for uh, his work as the lead vocalist for the famed Motown R&B group, The Four Tops. Nice. Uh, and while his work in The Little Shop, uh, it didn't lead to a lot of future voice work, he did provide the voice, Gary's going to like this, of Mother Brain in the early 90s cartoon Captain N, The Game Master. Hell Yeah. Justin bought me um, the uh, complete series for my uh, birthday one time. Like 15 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I have it on DVD, though. Yeah. Captain N's a blast. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> and I had a crush on the princess. And they'll do. But anyway, that's that's for another episode. Probably not. But <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> that's probably uh, the last time we'll ever mention Captain N on this show, honestly. That's true. <laughs> I, I will say the Four Tops did sing my favorite Motown song, which is I Can't Help Myself, uh, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So anyway, so good for nice. good for that guy. Good for that guy. So, Todd, uh, I have to ask, was Levi well, Wait, wait, in- don't. Wait. I'm sorry. Okay. Because I noticed this. Don't forget our ladies, too, because uh, Tashina Arnold... Michelle Weeks, Tisha Campbell, uh, they were not like a real music group or anything. They were teenagers, I think, when they were actually cast yeah. in this, right? He said they legitimately, when he decided they were the, the, the core, they went to like Chicago, New York, L.A., did all these auditions, and these were the only three that worked together so well. He was like immediately when they combined them, he was like, these are awesome. These are the people. Like Michelle Weeks is a legit singer by trade, I guess you'd say. She still is doing that. Uh, but Tashina Arnold, she's been in all kinds of shit. She's in sitcoms galore. Like uh, Everybody Hates Chris. Uh, she's in The Neighborhood, which my wife watches. Uh, but uh, I know people my age got to remember Martin. Damn, Damn Gina. Damn, Gina. WZUP. <laughs> what's up, what's up, what's up? <laughs> Where she plays Pam, who is best friends with Damn Gina, uh, yeah. who is played by Tisha Campbell. Yep. <laughs> uh, also, Tisha is Sydney in the house party movies. If you if you fucks with him, yeah. So anyway, I just had to give him credit. Thank yeah. you, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, 
let's get let's get to Todd's segment then. Yes, let's. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and looking at this uh, very uh, fun and funny group of actors and performers, I wondered, as I do, who of any of these people have been in Star Trek? And the answer is nobody. So nobody, not one. <laughs> Bullshit! Not How do we one. keep doing this? So yeah, uh, we're gonna have to cut this segment from the show. I well, think. here's the thing. So I so I asked <laughs> I asked myself as I do on uh, my show, the Computer Resume Podcast, available now wherever you get your podcast. Who do we blame? So uh, we blame <laughs> Marjorie Simpkin, who is actually the casting director of Little Shop of Horrors, and she has actually uh, worked on 44 of 56 episodes of Star Trek Discovery. And the pilot episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Oh, so, well, so you've got somebody behind the scenes. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, there's somebody. Somebody's done something. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So thanks, Marjorie. <laughs> well, I guess she just didn't think anyone from this was. I mean, honestly, I can't see anyone from this movie being in Star Trek. Well, I'll give uh, you something. I, I will give you something here. I mean, I don't know how the, the crew of the Enterprise never ran into Audrey, too, but that's <laughs> right. the point. They uh, exist in the Star Wars universe with all the other Muppets. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I stumbled upon this one, but if you look through a lot of the stuff with the special effects and everything, uh, Lyle uh, Conway. Lyle uh, Conway, yep. Yeah. Who uh, created the puppet. We'll get A lot that. of his team on this movie was through a group called Associates and Farron. They did all of the visual effects for star trek five ah the, that's uh, a good one nice i mean I nice suppose you, wait no star trek six is the good one i was about to say star trek five is the one directed by william shatner yeah star trek yeah. six is the undiscovered country right yeah six okay that's the, the one i was trip. thinking of that, five that's is my, the one where they find yeah. god which is yeah that, you know, that one's that's bad de- that's debatable yep. <laughs> 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 that one's bad <laughs> so little shop of horrors was filmed entirely on sound stages at Pinewood Studios. I think we've talked about Pinewood Studios here before. Uh, huge studio in England. Uh, it used every single sound stage at the studio, including the 007 stage, which is one of the largest sound stages in the entire world. Uh, Oz did not want to shoot on location because he felt that shooting on a sound stage would contribute to a more heightened, fantastical mood for the film, mm. uh, which I, I think he absolutely made the right decision there. Yeah. I guess uh, that makes sense. Like if you're especially trying to stick to the idea of the stage production, then that lets you get a little more broad with your yeah, performance. Yeah. The, the, the artificiality of the sets matches some of the, the artificiality of some of the performances and things like that. And it sets it within that, like almost B movie camp world of the original film. Yeah. I think. 007 stage, this enormous 007 stage was used to film Ellen Green's Big Number, which is my favorite song in the film, Suddenly Seymour. Uh, because that stage was so big, it couldn't be heated properly. So you could actually see Green and Moranis's breath when they sang. Uh, so what they ended up doing is they had the actors perform the song with ice cubes in their mouths to lower the temperature of their breath oh, so that wow. they, they wouldn't steam when they sang their song isn't that wild that's how <laughs> big that stage is Jeez. that's why that's why uh audrey looks like she has a pinch of dip uh in her mouth sometimes <laughs> when she's singing <laughs> one of the crazy things i thought on this was that the production designer roy walker and uh and frank oz they they worked on this i mean we kind of hit on this, but it was like a year Oz knew he was doing this movie. So he was like thinking it out for, for like a whole year. Uh, so especially with stuff like the song Skid Row, 
Roy Walker would make like actual models of stuff and Oz would walk through the musical numbers like he was basing it off the stage production like and he knew like what was supposed to happen like everything you see on the screen is exactly how it was envisioned by him before it happened almost like storyboarding but in a different format almost yeah yeah and they did have storyboards but the it's it's all like it was all in his head before it was on screen even like steve martin's number i meant to say this earlier with like uh, the dennis song i mean he said literally and it's weird because i was just watching the jurassic park the lost world for the first time since theaters but we'll talk about that for the next episode but uh in there they talk about how the t-rex models were so huge they didn't actually like have the sets ahead of time. They had the models set up and they built the sets around them. That's what they did with the actors in this movie. Sometimes like they, like Steve Martin and the Dennis number, he said the set was built around what Steve Martin was going to do. Like it was, it was around the staging. Yeah. He knew exactly where the, where he jumps off the motorcycle, how many steps to the revolving door to get into the office. Like exactly. So like, it was all measured out and planned ahead of that's time. That's wild. Wow. Yeah, I just thought that was nuts. That's really I, that's wild. Gotta, that's got to come from working with Henson on all the it's, Muppet stuff. Because that stuff be has because, to be so precise. Exactly. Because otherwise, yeah. if you see a hand or a wire or whatever, yeah. it, you're taken out of it. So, yeah. I bet you're exactly right. I bet that does come from like the meticulous planning that is required when you're doing a Muppet movie. Right. You, know, you, can't, you can't just put the camera anywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and I mean, you just met, you mentioned that they had just wrapped, uh, they had just wrapped uh, Muppets, Muppets Take Manhattan, yeah. which involves them walking on city streets. And we yeah. see Kermit's legs. We see him mm-hmm. pedaling a bicycle. Like, I can't imagine the amount of planning something like just that had to go into. Right. And this being kind of like, okay, well, we've learned some things from Muppets Take Manhattan. So here we go. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I never thought of about it that yeah. way, but I bet that is exactly it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I bet so. But yeah, so this whole process that the Gary is kind of was kind of laying out like that's that's a big undertaking, and it's pretty unusual. You don't hear about this being done on movies very often, but nothing on this film was as difficult as handling the film's true star, which is the Audrey Two puppet. So this puppet is enormous yeah incredibly complex that is a big damn Uh, yeah and it has several iterations with the final one being a massive puppet that took more than 20 people to operate i've read some things that said it took 60 to 70 people at one point to operate uh oz says like at the end like by by its largest that he 100 he's literally in the commentary says 60 people right there which is insane <laughs> like j- just to think about uh, the puppets that stood in for audrey too were designed by lyle conway we mentioned him a little bit earlier but he had worked with oz on the muppet show he'd worked on the dark crystal he'd wa- worked on the great muppet caper so they had a long-term relationship uh the team responsible for the animatronics and the fabrication of the puppet included a lot of the same folks who had worked on the creatures on jim henson's labyrinth as well so these are all muppet people you know, mm-hmm. these are all people that Oz has worked with and he trusts to do what is going to end up being probably the most complicated puppet that's ever been used in a movie. The most difficult scene to shoot in the entire film from everything that I've kind of read about this seems to be the up-tempo song towards the end of the film, Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, which, as Gary mentioned, was a song that was written specifically for the film. It was not in the original stage play. Uh, Oz wanted an absolutely perfect lip sync for the song with no mistakes at all. 
it's a pretty fast song, which so yeah. that's hard to do. And Oz and his puppeteers couldn't quite figure out how to make the puppet's lips move quick enough for a song as fast as that one is. So they kind of had this epiphany when they're watching footage from the film on videotape. They're fast forwarding, rewinding it, and they see the footage sped up and they're like, oh, wait, we could do this by shooting the puppet at a slower speed and then ramping up the speed of the film on playback, which would make it look like it's moving at a, a more natural, normal speed. So they have Levi Stubbs sing the song normal in pre-recording. Uh, they slow it down. They shoot the plant for 12 frames per second instead of the usual 24 frames per second. They'd shoot Miranda separately. If they're, in, if, you know, if they're not in the same shot, they're shooting Miranda separately uh, at the normal 24 frames. And then for the times when Moranis and the plant appear in the same shot, Oz shot at 18 frames per second, which actually required Moranis to perform and lip sync in slow motion. Wow. So he has a, and you can, it's hard to tell. Even once you know that it's hard to tell. Uh, He's, he's doing, he's doing it really well. Uh, The the best point that I can see it is uh, when he's sitting in the chair, like when he falls down into the chair and the plant pulls him in, you can kind of see him like, react like super fast like, yeah like yeah, a little squirrel bit. or something yeah right yeah <laughs> yeah like, but you wait, have to be weird. really looking for it yeah yeah you know? no you're you're right and everything involving that plant is practical i mean that that should go without saying i guess because this was what 1986 but uh there's no cgi it didn't exist yet there's also no blue screens or green sc- screens with the exception of the reshot ending where the plant is electrocuted and and some of the shots during the film's original ending, which we'll, again, we'll get to in a minute. And we see the plant in six different stages of growth. And what the filmmakers did is they built three different versions of Mushtick shop, which made it possible for two units to work uh, with different size plants at the same time. So they would build like, they would, they could use one size plant for multiple sizes of Audrey tube by having a different size set built around it, basically. Oh. But then each of the plants had to be cleaned and repainted and patched up at the end of every shooting day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He would he would describe they would have to like to to save on some time because Conway had to tell him like, look, you know, like some points where they had to move the plant around or something. He was like, it takes like two days to move the plant because yeah. <laughs> like, you got to rewire it, you got to do like everything again. Yeah, they got uh, rigs under the set, you know, yeah. and. He was saying that Conway saved his ass like multiple times just by like working extra just to 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 get the plant in the right spot. But yeah. he was he was shooting like a lot of stuff with the humans at the same time. He had a monitor sitting next to him that was showing second unit while with they them were shooting, shooting the, plant. the plant stuff. Yeah. Lyle Conway deserves so much credit because he uh, there's just some wicked shit in this movie and the um like even the stuff like we were just talking about like you imagine. I, I think it might be hard for people to understand because I, I had trouble wrapping my mind around it, but to, to sing along with that song so fast, there's literally a dude, I, I think it might have been Conway, like dressed in vines, like behind the head of the plant. And they're literally like manually moving the mouth of this huge <laughs> styrofoam latex like yeah. thing. Like, and he said it was exhausting. So like as fast I mean, yeah. as you could get it to go was that fast that they had to you know do what justin was just talking about my favorite one was the first time Tui gets blood and grows it's in the, the fucking coffee can and where it, just, it breaks the sides of the can yeah and it just grows out and i thought that's stop motion obviously but fuck that is so clean 
the way that plant just yeah. grows out. Yeah. But it's not stop motion. It's not it's real time. And the can is rubber and there's sticks inside the can that are pushing the can out. Yeah. And the plant is actually on the other side of the can and Lyle pushes it towards the camera. Moves it closer. Yeah, to generate perspective, so it That's looks cool. like it's growing. <laughs> wow. It's amazing. That's amazing. What? What? A, so it's it's like the same effect that they use on like Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I was exactly. just thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was all perspective. Like yeah, it's just wow. pushing it at the camera. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> movie, it's just movie magic. Can no matter how how deep we get into like the tips and tricks and all the things that they're doing to make all these you know dozens of movies we've talked about on the show so far, I, I'm still constantly like amazed by some of the ideas that people have to do something like that. You know? I'll tell you what it does for me. It makes me sit there and I watch that and I hear a story like that. And I'm like, man, I've never made a movie. Cause I'm always like, I don't, I don't you know, you, you got to have money and all this technology. And they're like, Oh, we made it look bigger just by pushing it towards the camera. <laughs> right. I'm like, Oh no, I'm just a piece of shit. There's no reason. <laughs> I have no excuse. <laughs> yeah. Like you could literally make a movie and do that same effect right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. So despite the difficulty of shooting with one of the most complicated put, uh, puppets that's ever been used in a film, Oz's biggest battle on Little Shop of Horrors was over the budget. Geffen originally wanted to budget the film at $9 million, which Oz felt was impossible because of the requirements of building the enormous sets and a bunch of giant, you know, incredibly complicated puppets. He, he knew that that wasn't going to be enough. The production began hemorrhaging so much money that the Warner Brothers company CEO, Terry Simmel, started calling Oz every day saying, quote, Frank, what the fuck are you doing with that much money? To which Frank kept replying, we're doing the best that we can. <laughs> which I think is a great reply to any anyone who is your superior. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We're, just, we're doing the best that we can. I was going to say, I, I might be using that at the office. Soon. <laughs> They're skipping. They're doing what they can. Except I thought it was funny that he tells stories about how the set designer had to like fly to the United States and filled up like literal huge cargo containers with American garbage cans and washers and dryers <laughs> and all of this stuff. So it could look like the USA. Was, yeah. Not only that, bought brand new ones. And then went and traded them for people's old ones. So it had looked like a run down Skid Row. I love That's amazing. <laughs> uh, uh, eventually, Terry Samel said, he's like, I'm going to come to London. I'm going to see what's going on, where all this money's going. But Oz talked him into sending his best production budget guy over. So that's what Warner Brothers did. This guy comes to London, spends about a week on the set. He goes through every single department just to like, really digging into it to see where all this money is going. And in the end, he comes back to Terry Samel and his answer, they're doing the best that they can. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was it. Wow. Hey, listen, I, I just want to take a second here and really praise Justin Bishop and Gary for all the research that they do and prep for this show. Part of why I'm mentioning this is because to pull back the curtain a little bit and, you know, let the listeners in on what's going on. I've had to stifle my laughter because uh, we are each going off of Justin's notes uh, as we go through these episodes. And two paragraphs ago, the paragraph starts with Geffen originally wanted to budget the film at $9 million. 
but in the version that we have from Justin, it's just nine dollars. <laughs> I've read right the million. Yeah, yeah, you didn't put it the wasn't M. nine dollars. And so I was looking at that going nine dollars. <laughs> that seems entirely water? too low. That's that's not enough money. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you could make this for that. <laughs> oh man, that's not going to cover craft services. You know, Come not on. to pull back the curtain even further, but this show costs more than nine dollars to make technically. <laughs> because <laughs> i got a zoom subscription yeah yeah <laughs> okay so we've mentioned it a couple of times but let's talk about that original ending so at the at the end of the original stage musical uh, seymour and audrey both die and the plant succeeds and uh, and takes over new york city Oz and Ashman, they wanted to keep this original ending for the film. Geffen was against it, but he supported Oz and Ashman's decision to do it. But Oz wanted to go even further, not not only having Audrey 2 take over New York City, but having his fellow alien plants take over the entire planet. Uh, So that's what they filmed. That's what they did. Uh, This was another very complex sequence to film. Uh, Oz hired a special effects team that was skilled in working with miniatures alongside with a special visual effects team. Uh, The model department was supervised by Richard Conway. Uh, No relation to Lyle Conway, I don't think, but Richard Conway was uh, known for his model work on Flash Gordon and Brazil. Uh, He also did the Adventures of Baron Monktilson after this for for Terry Gilliam. This entire sequence, remember, the original budget that Geffen wanted was $9 million. This entire sequence cost about $5 million on its own. But then as the, uh, as the film was getting close to being done, the studio set up a test screening in San Jose, and the screening was going great. Everyone was loving it. There was applause at the end of every musical number. Uh, the audience was super into it uh, until Seymour and Audrey died, at which point, as Frank Oz put it, the theater became an icebox, dead quiet. Everyone hated it. Uh, and then, so at, at the, when they do these test screenings, they, one, one of the main reasons they do it is to gather comments from the audience. They, get, they give them these comment cards that they will turn in at the end with either a recommend or a not recommend. And you have to get a 55 recommend. If it's below that, you're considered in trouble. Like you've got to do something else with this movie before it gets released. Uh, Little Shop got 13. Whoa. And- <laughs> This was a a disaster at this test screen. Oz thought it might be a fluke, so he talked the studio into setting up another test screen in L.A. to see if they get a different reaction, but they received the same negative comments as before. Oz, uh, he kind of learned a lesson by this, saying, uh, this is what he said in later interviews, uh, quote, in a stage play, you kill the leads and they come out for a bow at the end. In a movie, they don't come out for a bow, they're dead. So, and, and I, he's got a good point there, I, I think. It, it is a very different world uh, seeing someone on film. Plus, in a film, you're much more intimate with the characters. You've got close-up. You mm-hmm. know, you really learn to like them a little bit better than, than you do in a stage play. Mm-hmm. In a later interview for the film's 35th anniversary, he said, here's another quote from him. He said, I fucked up thinking that what I did was funny. The ending that I created out of tongue-in-cheek homage to the old B-movies was not funny enough. People took it seriously, and they were extremely upset that we killed the people that they loved. So they had to do something about this. Uh, Ashman rewrote a happier ending and the cast and crew all returned to London for six weeks to shoot a new ending. Uh, The musical number uh, Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, which is during this original ending, was left mostly intact with some new shots of Audrey observing from a window. And and there's a shot of her saying, like, I'm okay at the end, I think, if I remember right. Uh, In this new happy ending, Audrey 2 is destroyed Seymour and Audrey survive. 
but then they add this little nice ambiguous note at the end because you get this little smiling Audrey Two Bud uh, in Seymour and Audrey's front yard at the end, which is a, a nice little touch. But I, I, I'm curious which version you guys watched, though. Did you watch the theatrical cut or did you happen to watch the the director's cut? I had literally never seen the director's cut before this time. So yeah. I didn't even, I didn't, I honest to God did not know about the alternate ending. I going into this, I watched this movie like I had it on VHS. Like I watched it all the time as a kid. Um, I loved it, but I only ever knew of, of that one ending with the happy white picket fence and the smiling Audrey too. So I knew this director's cut was like alternate ending. I was like, Hmm, it's going to be fun. What, 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 you know, like what two minutes did they change? And I was right. Like, As I was watching, I was like, holy shit, none of this kaiju shit happened at right. all. Like, what is this? Yeah, it is vastly different. So you watched the director's cut. Yeah. So I watched the director's cut. I watched the original theatrical cut and I had a little bonus of an edible. Yeah. And um, the whole time, <laughs> the whole time I was sitting there watching it with my wife. And eventually she looked over at me. We're about two thirds of the way through the movie and I'm sort of squinting at the screen. She goes, you okay? And I said, I think that plant is. <laughs> Todd had an experience. I did. I had a really. Well, you should have, you should have gone with director's cut then because Audrey too, like goes full on Godzilla at the full on Godzilla is, is like destroying um, buildings and the statue of Liberty. And it's everything it, ridiculous. So that original ending, you know, it was thought lost for years and years, even in the, the DVD that came out in 2008 had like a black and white work print version of it, which at the time was considered the only existing footage and the full color ending with the sound elements, everything were cobbled together through prints that were found in film art, like three different film archives across the country. And it was a, a it was released in 2012 when the movie came out on Blu-ray. Uh, that was the first time that it had ever been seen outside of those original test screens. Uh, so I watched it this time because uh, I, I had never seen, I had seen the original ending, but I'd never seen it tacked onto the movie like this. My wife had never seen it at all. And she adores this movie. So it was it was quite a shock to her to see that. She loved it, though, uh, that original ending. Uh, it's fun. Uh, I love the original ending to this movie because it is ridiculous. It's big and it's absurd and it's very nihilistic. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> it really is. But I also absolutely see why audiences in 1986 were not connecting. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I can't hate on people for having a little compassion. So I won't. Um, they... Needed to see the hero's triumph, and I yeah. get that. And and like he said in a in a stage production, you know, you get to see them come out, and everybody bows at the end, and everybody's happy and goes home. And and right. this one that doesn't happen, all of that actually does make sense to me. Um, that said, I mean, I get the fifty sci-fi thing. This whole whole deal is going for, and the ending totally works for me to have it's fun them destroying <laughs> the the world. Um, yeah, I mean, but but we're like big fans of you know, Kaiju and things like that. So seeing Audrey basically turn into Godzilla at the end or multiple Godzillas is really fun for someone like us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, I was thinking it was wicked. Uh, Oz actually said, uh, uh, this is a quote from him. Uh, one of the worst things I had to do as a director was after a year of work, $5 million, I had to tell Richard Conway, who did the brilliant animated stop motion work, that I could not use his stuff anymore because they wouldn't release the movie. The scores were so low that they simply would not release the movie if I had kept that ending. It was hard. It was just awful because I had to tell Richard we couldn't use the stuff he worked so hard on 
terrible. Years later, though, when I heard they were going to do it for the director's cut, I thought, this is fantastic. I got to call Richard, and I was so thrilled because he was at the end of his career, about to retire, and now finally the audience could see his brilliant work that made that made me the happiest of all time when they released. Yeah, as a, as a piece of filmmaking, it is pretty incredible. <laughs> it is a gr- it is an incredible use of miniatures and stop motion and puppets, and it is just super fun. And there are a lot of funny moments in the finale. Uh, I especially like the um, the moment where there's a, a, a like elevated train that goes into a giant Audrey II's mouth. You know, like that's really fun. Or one where I think he blows on like a smokestack. And the whole building blows up. Yeah, they walk up to the smokestack and he like puts his mouth around it like a straw and like blows on it. It blows everybody up. It's pretty funny. Uh, And there there are a couple of funny moments. But overall, the ending is pretty intense for a movie that's been mostly pretty like light and breezy throughout. You know, (laughs) if you think about real world stuff, like if you were in a Godzilla movie or Cloverfield and the monster was also laughing like one of the members of the four tops the whole time it was murdering everyone. <laughs> it's kind of terrifying. I guess. Well, and th- that ending goes on for a really long time. <laughs> like, yeah. It is a lot of like just laughing. Audrey twos bursting through brick buildings over and over and over. <laughs> it goes on really long time. And, and of course it also kills off two characters who the audience has come to care for and like, uh, you know, we, we mentioned that casting Moranis, you know, was a, a bit of genius casting because he is so likable. Well, then what happens when you kill someone that likable off, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, and, and poor Audrey, characters- who's had the worst of it. All she's yeah. ever been through is just getting beat up by their ex. And, and she's they- finally about to be happy. And then no, she just dies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and th- those characters do die in the stage play as well, but the play gets it over a lot more quickly. Like, you know, they're eaten. And then I, I think the, instead of like, there's not this big carnage thing like some vines drop down from the ceiling in the theater to kind of uh show how they're taking over this theater and then new york you know but the movie we get like five minutes of just straight up plant carnage it's it's almost like the movie is just rubbing it in the face of the audience because it goes on for so long you know how dare you identify with and support (laughs) these characters right so i i i love the ending but i absolutely understand why they didn't want to use and why audiences didn't connect with. This is one of the few like reshot endings. You know, we mentioned Brazil earlier. I'm sure we'll do an episode on that one day. But like that reshot ending is a fucking disaster, you know. Uh, but this is like, uh, I get it. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. yeah. Now, to be fair, the theatrical ending doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Audrey and Seymour, you know, they end up in their white picket fence fantasy. They're somewhere that's green. But how do they get there? Yeah. Because they don't have the money that they were going to make off of selling the Audrey twos. So like, it doesn't really make any sense that they end that way. But at that point, it's just like, ah, fuck it. Give them a happy ending. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> That's what the audience wants to see. Yeah. So the film's release was delayed because of the reshoots of that original ending. As I mentioned, you know, the, the cast and crew had to come back to London for six weeks. Uh, but it was eventually released on a December 19th, right before Christmas of 1986. It grossed uh, $39 million at the box office, which the studio kind of saw as an underperformance. It wasn't like a flop by any means, but considering the film's budget, uh, which you know, ended up being closer to $25 million, which at the time was the most expensive movie that Warner Brothers had ever produced. Uh, For comparison, James Cameron's Aliens, which we'll be talking about pretty soon on the show, uh, which was also produced at Pinewood Studios, 
and released the same year as Little Shop of Horrors, cost about 18. Mm -hmm. But when Little Shop came out on video, that's when it really became a hit. This was a movie that people, you know, in 1987, it hits VHS and people are just, this is a movie that people are renting over and over and over and people are like learning to love it. And that's really when it became the cult classic that it is now is on video. It did, its box office was modest. It Mm. wasn't, like I said, it wasn't a disaster. It was modest. It did okay. But it became a huge, huge hit when it came on video, which to me, that's a cult movie. You know, that's a cult film, something that builds because people love it and they tell their other friends and then they love it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I didn't, I mean, I was too young to see this in theaters when it came out. I don't, I truly do not remember the first time I saw this. I was thinking the same thing, but you're right. This is the very definition of how a cult movie works. Like it, it just is on video. It's one of those things. Like, I don't know that I've seen this movie in years. Honestly, I still remember every single song. Um, and all of the beats of the the story just because like I watched it so many times over and over again. Yeah. Like it's just part of my DNA now. Yeah. I just know little shop of horrors. Yeah. And, uh, so that's, that, that's exactly what they're supposed to do. Like people just get the movie on tape and then they just keep watching it. And, uh, that to me is what a cult movie is. Something that inspires obsession. Yeah. Mm. That's why I think star Wars is a cult movie, despite it being one of the most successful movies of all time. Who's more obsessive about Star Wars movies than like hardcore Star Wars fans? Like to me, that's what a cult movie is. A movie that inspires obsessions of some sort. Anything can be a cult movie. It doesn't matter how it's successful. Uh, I'm sure I'll get shit about that from some people, but I don't care. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, like, I mean, there are like certain videos on Pornhub that are just like cult Pornhub movies. Because you just keep watching them over and over. Yeah. It's just like, (laughs) you know. It was, uh, you can't, you can't, it's like, who is it? Roger Ebert, uh, you know, talking about like, you can't, uh, argue about what scares someone and you can't argue someone out of a boner. If it works, it works. <laughs> is that a Roger Ebert quote? I, I was going to say, <laughs> that is a quote. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it was. I feel like you even told me that. I don't know. Maybe. I, 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 don't, I, I don't know, know if it's in that boner. I don't know if Roger Ebert ever wrote the word boner, but I'm just saying uh, if it scares you, it scares yeah. you. If it makes you hard, it makes you hard. If you're happy, you're happy. That, hey, if, that if you're horny, is, you're horny. That quote is actually on the back of the box for li- Little Shop of Whores. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so that's uh, well, speaking it, of Roger, can't argue someone out of a boner, Audrey. Too. <laughs> uh, speaking of Roger Ebert, uh, when this movie was released, the theatrical response was pretty great. Uh, critics really did like it and roger ebert actually has one of my favorite review quotes that i came across when looking over these uh, reviews from the time he said uh, quote all the wonders of the little shop of horrors are accomplished with an offhand casual charm this is the kind of movie that cults are made of and after little shop finishes its first run i wouldn't be at all surprised to see it develop as one of those movies that fans want to include in their lives he was predicting this being a cult movie when he reviewed it before it ever came out so he nailed it yeah i love that And despite the fact that Little Shop of Horrors uh, seems to be almost universally loved, I'm willing to bet that if you dig deep enough on the internet, you will be able to find some folks who have some unkind things. Mm, It's true. No matter what movie, no matter where you look, somebody somebody doesn't like it. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody needs a name. I skipped about you past a bunch of reviews that were just like I, I will tell you what there is an abundance of there is a bunch of one star reviews 
on places that our grandparents that rented this movie or bought this movie and accidentally showed the director's cut and they're <laughs> mad about the ending. <laughs> and it's more than you'd think. You think I'm just like talking out my ass, but there are like many, many reviews like that. And there are reviews of people who hate musical. And that part makes no sense to me. But yeah, I I, uh, I I glanced over some reviews on Letterboxd and a lot of them was like, man, I hate musicals. So, of course, I hate this movie. Why did you fucking watch it if you hate musicals? Like, <laughs> yeah. then you come in and rate it based <laughs> off the fact that you hate musicals. Right. Jesus, this is not <laughs> it's not for you, buddy. Uh, but I did try to pick out some nice ones here. How about uh, here's Brett with uh, the title of his review is Little Shop of Turds. <laughs> That's also on Pornhub, just so in case anyway. It's a it's a separate section, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, he says uh this is perhaps one of the lamest movies ever made. Yup, ever made. I've had bowel movements provide more pleasure than watching this movie. Stupid is an understatement. Why this was ever made is beyond me. Ugh, what a waste of time. Feed me, feed me. I'll feed you a nice dose of turning the channel. <laughs> I love Brett. Ah, oh, bring it. Uh, this is by a guy called The Guy Who Reviews. His title oh. of his review is Trash. Uh, horrible movie. The hot girl dies. The evil plants take over the world. What a piece of utter trash this is. Oh, yeah. The plant kills the main character, too. This movie sucks. Yep. Uh, this <laughs> is from Tommy Crusher, calls it pure garbage. Uh, says this movie deserves an R rating. Do not let your young teenagers see this movie unless you want to corrupt them with cultural Marxism. <laughs> Here's oh, Britain. I don't think it's our Britain, but uh, Britain says uh, the subject or the title of her review is not the correct ending. Uh, <laughs> 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 review just says, this is not how the screenplay ends. This movie is not accurate. All these people are watching. <laughs> They're just watching the director's cut, I guess. But she also had it. She also had an edible and was like, I think that plant is fake. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is not accurate. Audrey, Audrey plants don't look. Uh, uh, this is from Gitter Dodd. Go, no, Gitter, Gitter Dodd. I bet is what they were going for. Gitter Don. And their name yeah. is Don. Gitter Dodd. Ah, wow. nice. Wow. Title of the review is just terrible. There's talent on display here, but for me, only terribly so. Ugly people, ugly situation. Coarse and crude. Maybe that's the joke, and the joke's on me. Or maybe it's just a product of ugly times. We turned it off halfway through. Wow. So, by definition, they didn't. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, they only got her halfway done. <laughs> uh, here's uh, Sidisluggo. Uh, their review is half star just says Marxist trash. Well, that's two. That's two so far. Yeah. Here's Lily. Uh, she says when the one girl sings, she looks like she's about to throw up. Interesting, but lots of stuff going on. Some too quick to notice. That's not even a review. <laughs> just a description. Uh, you'll love this review from Winslow who gives it one star and says, I'd let the plant eat my ass, but I fart first. Farts. <laughs> Poot out your bum hole. <laughs> That's a little shop of turds. <laughs> right. uh, 
Man, finally from John Mulaney. I don't think it really is. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like he would. I feel like John Mulaney would enjoy this movie. I think so too. I think he'd make a good Seymour. Honestly, <laughs> you might be right. He would make a good Seymour. Oh my god! What uh, star ending was shit? Dragged on forever. The girls sang in cursive, so I didn't understand her half the time. Steve Martin's character, I could tell, was a serial killer for watching Criminal Minds. <laughs> The girl singing cursive is a pretty good line, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> that might be the real John Mulaney. <laughs> uh, so there you go. Well, th- the film was pretty popular when it came out, you know, uh, at least among critics and audiences that did see it really enjoyed it. And it also received a couple of Academy Award nominations. It got a nomination for Best Visual Effects and one for Best Original Song for Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. Uh, remember, you, you that one was written for the film, which it has to be written specifically for the film to be eligible for a, a nomination. Uh, it lost in both of those categories. Mm. Best Visual Effects went to James Cameron's Aliens. And Best Original Song went to Take My Breath Away by Berlin for Top Gun. Mm. Yeah, who could blame him? Uh, I mean, that's not a bad song. I like this. Yeah, it's It's catchy. It's in your head. It's an earworm. It's in my head now. Honestly, it is for me too. It's all I've all I've got not to sing it right now. Copyright worries that that keep me in my head. I have the guy farting into the the plant the plant's mouth. That's what's in your head right now. That's what's in my head. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I can see that. I yeah. See that. yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, I've made no secret of the fact when, when it, it, I think we talked about this when I brought this up, but I love musicals. Uh, I love seeing them on stage. I love them in movie form. Uh, so I'm very glad that the first musical that we've ever talked about on cinema shock uh, is one of my all time favorite movie musicals. Uh, and I think from talking to both of you, even so far on this episode, it seems like you guys are both, fans of this or have been fans of this for a while as well oh, yeah. this is not like a this is not a new experience for any of us uh, gary i assume you're a fan of musicals in general because you are a musical theater major in college <laughs> i was gonna mistaken. say if we haven't discussed yeah i had like a scholarship <laughs> in musical theater so yeah. that was kind of yeah i don't i don't hate musicals at all and it bums me out when people say they do hate musicals because I don't know. I feel like life would be so much better if it was a musical. It was, yeah. All the time. <laughs> Everyone Absolutely. just built it out into song. I would love it. Like, yeah. oh, why, why were you late to work? Oh, I, there was a, I was walking down the well, street. Well, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, um, man. But I also love that in this one that we're talking about, this is a movie that kind of represents the perfect synchronicity of stage and screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, because not all stage musicals work as a film i don't think uh, i was i was literally watching this justin thinking about movies like uh rent right and and then, thinking like wow this is on skid row they're in and out of buildings they're doing i was like what makes this work so much better than like the movie version of say rent you know like yeah. i just uh yeah and i don't know i don't know if it's just because maybe rent should have been on sets or something. I don't know. Like, cause rent's a little more serious, a lot, more a little, <laughs> a lot more serious. <laughs> um, as far as the subject matter, but yeah. um, I don't know. I, but, but you bringing that up, it was, it was 
literally something I was thinking about towards the end of watching it this time. I was like, why does this work so well? Because yeah. they're, they're doing a damn fine job. Like, I mean, a, a lot of times the staginess of a, a show doesn't translate well to screen. Yeah. Uh, or it's awkward if you try to change it into a more realistic setting. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, what's so fun about Little Shop is that it started as a movie then became a stage musical, mm-hmm. then became a movie version of that stage musical. And I'm not sure that I can think of any other movies that meet those criteria other than Hairspray, yeah, uh, which went through that same yeah. trajectory. And I love Hairspray. Um, I love the musical. I love the John Waters movie. But the musical strikes a very different tone than John Waters' original film. Mm. Uh, it feels very different. It's, it's still very good, but it's very different. What I think is kind of remarkable about Frank Oz's Little Shop is how it still maintains a lot of Corman's B-movie tone, and it never shies away from the story's horror elements. It's not not playing the horror for scares by any means, but it's still about a guy feeding humans to a man-eating plant. Like It doesn't shy away from the violent aspects of it and the weird B-movie sci-fi aspects of it. I would say it's playing just as much horror as anything in the fifties was. You yeah, know? yeah. Like it's just. I would. I would agree. Yeah, it's, it's as much as the original film. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Like it's even it's more not, so, honestly, because in the original film, I don't think anyone gets like killed nefariously. It's like a bum gets hit by a car, and then Seymour feeds him to a plant and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. You know? So I think this is actually a little bit more, maybe a little more mean spirited than, than the original. Right. Yeah. It's it's weird. I I, I just. I don't know. I guess I guess you might be onto something with the absurdity of the whole thing um, that it's the or the tone of it, which I, yeah. I guess little little shop is a, a different tone, whereas something like I don't I don't know where, where if it's a more serious production, then it makes it more difficult to I don't know. But then explain cats. I don't you know, <laughs> <laughs> but well, I, I think you're onto something because I think that the the hybrid of stage and screen comes into play in Oz's very specific decision to shoot this entirely on sets. Uh, He wants the heightened reality of the stage. He wants it to look like a set because that, that not only gives the film a nod to its stage set origins that play, but also it feels very much like the backlot look of mu- uh, movie musicals of Hollywood's golden age. Yeah. Uh, think much. West Side Story, think uh, Singing in the Rain. You know, they're all very obviously on studio backlots. That's a great uh, point. Like, like and, Steve Martin driving down the road on his motorcycle. Yeah. And it's like clearly, or like I think actually in the commentary, I says that, you know, they, they filmed that with like models and dragging the camera through the model. And then yeah. that's the back that's put behind Steve Martin. Like he wanted it to look phony. Yeah. And mm. I think that contributes to the tone. Uh, and, and I think that there, there's that artificiality because you're they're not going for realism like something like Rent would be. Now, Rent would probably be goofy if it was on sets like this. I just don't think that Rent is maybe not adaptable into it yeah or maybe it just needs a different director i don't know um but oz also injects that artificiality into the film's performances as well because nearly every performance in this film is completely overblown uh see see christopher guest christopher guest yeah john candy vincent cardinia you know they're all playing in this deliberately big stagey way that I think adds to the overall tone of the film. The most grounded performance in the film is probably Seymour, and it's still pretty over the top. 
Yeah. (laughs) I just love that. It's such a nice grouping of comedy legends. It's really fun to see all of them on screen. uh, Even if they're not sharing scenes necessarily, it's really fun to watch them all. I don't think I ever got to appreciate that as much until this time. Yeah, yeah. That, like, how many John legends Candy are in this? Yeah. Martin and Rick yeah. Moranis and Bill Murray and like yeah, Christopher just, Guest again, Christopher yeah. Guest, like all these people just showing up on this movie. That's that's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah, very very cool. Uh, and if you want to dig into the film's themes, you can. Uh, I mean, you, you obviously have, cultural Marxism. Yeah, I, I was about one. to say you had several of those, <laughs> <laughs> several of those things that mentioned Marxism. Uh, so people are definitely digging into this. I think. I see this as a version of the American dream story, the great American dream, the great American success story, mm-hmm. uh, because you've got Mr. Mushnick, who is this heavily accented Jewish immigrant uh, and was deliberately portrayed that way in the play and in the original film. I think everyone in the original film is very specifically coded as Jewish in mm-hmm. that. And so he, he's, you know, an immigrant who's trying to keep his small struggling business afloat uh, in this version of the story. Seymour is an orphan who owes Mushnick a lifelong debt. Uh, that was a little different from the original because I think his mother's in the original movie, if I remember right. She's in like oh, an yeah. Iron Lung or something, right? I think yeah, that's right. Something yeah, something like that. Just like yeah. all the time. Oh, <laughs> and then there's Audrey, who's had a pretty rough upbringing <laughs> in this, an absent father, you know, and uh, she seems to have a, a rough string of abusive boyfriends. These are all characters who have dreams of getting out of Skid Row. That's what the crux of the movie is really about right uh, is them trying to find a way out of the gutter you know and once they get a little taste of success they all go a little bit nuts like seymour abandons his morals uh mr mushnick who seems like a nice guy after he catches seymour feeding audrey too he immediately tries to blackmail him <laughs> you yeah. know uh and then audrey who's a little a little less nefarious is no less desperate uh she shows up at the flower shop in a full bridal gown, just ready to marry the first guy who's ever been nice to her in her entire life. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like these are all people who are just desperately trying to get out of the situation that the, uh, the life has dealt them, you know? So I, I really think that this movie is a lot more cynical. And I, I mentioned earlier that the ending is the original ending is pretty nihilistic and it is. Uh, but this movie as a whole is a lot more cynical and a lot more satirical. I think than a lot of people give it credit for. A lot of people just mm-hmm. see this as like on a surface level. And that's how I watched it for years. But watching it this time, I was like, this is pretty like this is pretty fucked up, honestly. <laughs> like yeah. these people well, are the whole thing. And and I could see people just like initially watching it and they're gonna have a problem with say like Audrey being such a pushover and just like the worst female lead ever or something, you know. Yeah. And she's just like, oh well I hope I get a nicer guy so I can save on, you know, Epsom salts and stuff baking bandages yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. bandages yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's like well yeah but it's it it is it is definitely playing that up for sure it is i mean and and think about the these characters you know at least at the beginning of the movie audrey is a sweet girl uh you know seymour and mushnick are nice they're hard workers uh they're they're doing their best but none of that matters when it comes to success. They're not seeing any success, no matter how nice they are, no matter how hard they work. It doesn't get them anywhere. They only start to see success when they sell out to a man-eating alien. They literally have to give blood, <laughs> their own blood, to get ahead in life. I mean, that's that's the version of the American dream that 
Frank Oz is giving us <laughs> this movie. Oh, that's uh, that's deep, Justin. That's yeah. like I mean, literally the the song about uh, where where Seymour first gives Audrey blood. Like mm-hmm. the, I've given you this, I've given you that. You know, yeah. like all this stuff. Yeah. What else and do I have to give? Yeah. You give your <laughs> yeah. Blood. It's it's pretty wild when you think about it in those terms because that's very much what this movie's about. Well, speaking of songs, though, do you guys have a favorite song in the film? Uh, I think I, I think I um, the dentist. I because I, I, yeah. I, I <laughs> and I do the kind of with uh with my dog Max uh you know when he sits at Cat's feet and just is looking up at her when she finally notices him I always put my head around the corner and go oh mama <laughs> <laughs> um but I mean yeah it's every single one of these songs is an ear they're all bangers aren't they yeah I was about to say it, it struggles from the the problem that great musicals do that, that yeah. all of them get stuck in your head and you just you just get addicted to the soundtrack for a little while uh, Oz even said that like the thing that kept him going when they were dealing with like questions and all this like why is this costing so much why is it taking so long and he's like going back and forth in london uh he said he was like literally listening to the soundtrack to the musical and was like yeah. this is what keeps me pumped up it's like yeah. all right we yeah. gotta do this we gotta Good do shit. this and uh <laughs> i mean it is really hard to pick a favorite uh skid row is pretty incredible it's i like was gonna perfect- say like i i i don't think sorry to keep jumping yeah, in there yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but i i i would say like Overall, I think Skid Row might be it for me because just the choreography of the whole thing yes. included with the, the song. Like when the um when the, the chorus, when they're in their regular like outfits, they step off screen and then it seems like just seconds later they're coming back in their full like gowns. And then the camera pans to that alleyway and that lady the 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 like um i don't know if she's like a bag lady or what but this like single lady comes walking down just belting out her ver- voice and her voice not is her, incredible not her real uh, voice by the way it's not they had to overdub her she was like a paris like opera singer like a legitimately good singer but then as they were doing it they were like she's not gospel enough yeah well whoever so they got they had to, to overdo her voice incredible uh, yeah, that's no, a, it's no, a great it's moment. Fantastic. But but even yeah, like I, I'm talking like even in the background, just watch the background, like the people coming down the stairs when the girls are singing and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like there's just so much happening. Yeah. All around them at the same time. It's just it's fucking phenomenal like, well, how much is going on in that scene. All great like Broadway shows and musicals have this one big opening number that is like the hello. This is where we are. Like, hello from uh, the Book of Mormon. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like you've got this big number that introduces you to all the characters, the mood of the story, like the vibe of the whole thing. And in this one, you know, it's laying out the like the idea of how bad this neighborhood is, how badly people want out of it. You know, it's really a great song and a great introduction into the world of this movie and this story. Uh, and I also think that from a filmmaking standpoint, it's pretty incredible as well. So it's a, it's a great uh, mashup of, of Ashman and, and uh, Minkle's, you know, songwriting and also Frank Oz's filmmaking. Mm. Uh, I also love somewhere that's green. I think that's a great song. I think that's my wife's favorite. Probably. Um, I think Ellen Green's performance is incredible. I mentioned earlier, probably my favorite song is is probably Suddenly Seymour. 
Suddenly uh, Seymour is a really I think great Ellen one. Green's performance in that she is just she just oh, felt she's so it out good, dude. But song. and so is Miranda's. He's really good in that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just love that. I love that song. I love that duet. And it it gets uh, it comes up, you know, it gets re, uh, reprised later on in the film. But it's just, I don't know, there's something about that song that just gets gets me. But all the song and everything that Levi Stubbs sings is great. Feed me is really fun. You yeah. know, like, yeah, I was going to say, and, and mean green mother from outer space yeah. is like just a catchy song from, for any occasion. Like, yeah. It's just, it's just good. <laughs> it's, it's just, just good. a good rocking song. Yeah. I mean, I, I can listen to this soundtrack out of, co- out of the context of the film and enjoy it just as a, an album, mm-hmm. which yeah. I think is the sign of a, a well-written musical oh right. sure because not, not yeah. all of them you can't do that with all of them um there might be songs here and there that you can listen to on a musical soundtracks but a lot of times you need the context of the story for them yeah. to really make sense this one they just work as songs yeah. you know they really do well even the more i i feel like even more modern musicals see something like la la land or um greatest show um the greatest, greatest show yeah they they don't have they're those are great movies and really fantastic soundtracks but they don't have the volume of stuff that mm-hmm. this movie does like every song is good yeah <laughs> right like yeah. every song every, unless you unless those you other can ones get away every, with every song you know there's some really great ones and everything is like par for the course but each of these with with little shop is just just to the nines it's they, they so, make great so good. singles like Mm-hmm. A, a bunch mm-hmm. of them would make great singles which is yeah. a rare thing the only other thing that works in a musical for me is like if if the musical is operatic enough that like you can get the story by listening to the album i would like I would hamilton like, yeah i was gonna say right. i was gonna say rent is one yeah. of those and hamilton is where there is no dialogue everything is some yeah it's mm-hmm. just like it just works like you could just listen to the album and get the basis of the story miss saigon's yeah. another one yeah uh, well, before we like finish things up, I do want to mention, you know, we, we talked about Howard Ashman and Alan Minken. Uh, this movie would not, we're, we're gushing about the songs and as good as Frank Oz's direction is. And I think it's pretty incredible. I think a lot of the decisions he made is why this works on screen as well as it does, mm. but this movie would not be what it is without those incredible songs by Howard Ashman. And Alan Minken. Uh, and, and not long after this, we mentioned, you know, they went on to work for Disney. They did the music for The Little Mermaid. They did the music for Beauty and the Beast, for which they won an Oscar. Uh, they were actually working on the music for Aladdin when uh, when Howard Ashman passed away. Howard Ashman died very young. He's 41 years old. He was about to turn oh, 41 years old. He, um, he, di- he, had, uh, he had AIDS. He, uh, he died of complications. It was a horrible death. Um, he, he just wasted away and eventually died of heart failure caused by, by AIDS. Uh, so he didn't actually finish his work on Aladdin. Tim Rice, Sir Tim Rice came in and, and finished some of the songs that he had not finished yet. Uh, but Howard Ashman, there's a great documentary about him on Disney+. Plus. Uh, he was an incredible talent, I think. And the world is a little less good without him continuing to make art in it i think uh if you watch beauty and the beast uh because he he want you know he won an oscar for beauty and the beast but it was actually uh after his death uh the 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 oscars were in 1992 a year after he died he won an oscar for it but if you watch beauty and the beast 
at the very end of the credits, the closing credits, it says to our friend Howard, who gave a mermaid her voice and a beast his soul, we will be forever grateful. Uh, which I think, I mean, what what a legacy to leave. I just I just got back from Disney World a couple of days ago, and you hear these songs that these guys have written everywhere, and everyone knows them. You know, they're some of the most popular songs that will ever be written, like literally. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the most popular songs that will ever be written. People will be singing these for generations. Like that's, that's more than most like popular musicians can say. Yeah. Well, that's why well, I wanted to bring them up early on uh, with that, that Oz was always very appreciative of him and talks yeah. highly of him that how much he helped with the tone and everything that happened in this movie. And that the, that he saw something in Oz and doing this movie. And that's why, additional songs were written for it and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Like uh, he, he's a, he's a good dude and he knows what he's doing. And uh, so I, yeah. I, what, what else can you say than yeah. what you just said? <laughs> <laughs> but part, part of what I love about little shop of horrors is that it's sort of this perfect combination of dark themes, very dark themes as we've discussed uh, with cuteness and charm. Like it's, it's a story about a plant, that thrives on blood it's hero quote unquote hero is a guy who's willing to commit murder it's got characters like the dentist who has like an s&m fetish and is abusive to his girlfriend all this like really weird dark stuff but it's also got really catchy songs by the guys who wrote under the sea and it's got this really heartfelt romance at its center and that's a really hard thing for a movie to have all of that to exist with all of those things yeah. You know, like that's <laughs> that's a hard tone to hit where mm. and make it work. And this movie makes it work. And it's probably part of why I love it so much because I mean I do love musicals, but I also love fucked up horror movies and like you know, stuff like that. So this is like the perfect combination of my interests. That's oh, yeah. why the ending works for us. It's yeah. just because it's right. like, oh, it should end with the world right uh, with the world also ending. ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so before we wrap things up, guys, uh, do you have any recommendations for further viewing on this one? Uh, if I go, I'm going to say, which I am, apparently, because I just jumped <laughs> in. <laughs> I was ready. Uh, I would say, uh, obviously, the big one for me is uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think there's mm-hmm. no way around it. Yeah. That is like the ultimate, like a number one perfect combination movie mm-hmm. with this. Uh, but you could also do, uh, if you wanted to, uh, the blob, the eighties blob movie. Yeah. It's very much similar concept, like very inspired by those fifties B movies. Yeah. Yeah. But I, <laughs> even the eighties version works just like this one does. Like it, mm-hmm. it just, it, it just fits really well. Um, I will also throw in, and I was proud of this because I just watched it a little while ago, but I, only learned about this movie because of this show in its early stages, but Phantom of the Paradise, yeah, uh, did work really well. Oh yeah, love it, love that movie. Uh, I think I would have to go for a double feature. I'd, I'd actually go Sweeney Todd. Um, I know a lot of people don't like the Johnny Depp Helen. Bonham I like the Carter. Tim Burton Sweeney Todd. 
Yeah, it's good. I, I, really I thought like of it. Sweeney Todd as I was watching this, yeah. honest to God, just because the, the the idea of Seymour like murdering people, like yep. it just like there's yeah. like this connection. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, you know, on, on my show, uh, Computer Resume podcast available now, wherever you get your podcast. We've actually been talking about um, the idea of desperation. And we mentioned uh, the desperation of some of the characters in Little Shop. And, you know, with Sweeney Todd, you, you're seeing a lot of people in a very desperate state, which mm-hmm. drives them to whatever they do in that I mean, the, the portion of, of London that they exist in in that movie is not unlike Skid Row. Yeah, 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 yeah. very much. It is, and, 100%. Uh, and I, I, I love that music. I love the aesthetic. Of course, you mentioned Tim Burton. You know, it's mm-hmm. hard to beat. Uh, Helen Bonham Carter. Everybody, Alan Rickman uh that cast is a really fantastic cast as well so uh yeah that'd probably be my double feature i would probably i would probably watch that first and then little shop to kind of with an uplifting ending palette cleanser (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) have you ever seen sweeney todd on stage i have that's great it's It's, a it's a great stage show it's well the version that we saw we saw it at the peace center here in town and uh, with the minimalist was, background where it the, was like the minimalist, yeah it was pretty yeah. cool though it was interesting it was an interesting take and yeah. uh you know uh, well this isn't a broadway review show but yeah it was fun <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see a i'd love to see a, a bigger version of it yeah. it's, it's a great story with the movie jersey girl by kevin smith uh ben affleck's daughter um right. they have to do like musicals like a musical number and all she wants to do is sweeney todd and, <laughs> and anyway him and Liv tyler finally give in at the end and there's yeah. a whole musical number with sweeney todd where he gets his throat <laughs> slit and sent through the sliding thing down into yeah. the floor it's pretty cool so if i were uh, rocky horror picture show would be my number one choice gary already mentioned it uh i just think it's got that it's got that same like B movie camp vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that Little Shop is probably a better movie overall. Uh, but the music, I mean, Rocky Horror is another one of my favorites. I'm a huge Rocky Horror fan. I have a Dr. Frankenfurter tattoo on my arm. Like <laughs> I'm clearly a fan of Rocky Horror. Uh, but I do think that they both exist in that same like 50s B movie universe. You know what I mean? Um, but I would also say if you want to do more cool Muppets, Labyrinth. I love, I love Labyrinth. I don't Labyrinth love Dark Crystal, which I know uh, Frank Oz co-directed. I'm I, not a fan. Of, I'm not a huge fan that of that one's Crystal, a tough one, it but is. I do adore Labyrinth. I really do. Um, so those would be my picks. I'm surprised ask- you didn't bring up some John Water somewhere in there. I thought about but- Crybaby uh, specifically <laughs> um, because I don't know. There's something about the the Johnny Depp character. The, the characters in that feel like they're they could be on Skid Row. <laughs> right. something about this felt like john waters yeah so I, like, I, I honestly i was waiting for you i know you're a big john waters fan yeah. i was like something something in here is coming i honestly god show. did consider crybaby even if I it's did. like hedwig or something yeah um, which is that's not john waters that's not john waters but i mean <laughs> i i know you mentioned hedwig in the angry inch all the time too yeah and i love that movie i was waiting i was waiting for something and <laughs> i mean i did mention hairspray earlier yeah. which would also make a good double feature with this the musical hairspray mm-hmm. i think would, would well, work pretty well you guys mentioned uh rocky horror is there uh is there a, like an audience participation type thing like rocky horror has is, is there one for, for this could be. yeah i feel yeah. like there could be but not not that i'm fam- oh, okay aware of we'll no. have to start it <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll we'll begin a, a 
little shop of horrors audience participation we just got to <laughs> yes. come up with the cues and like yes. what you throw we'll at the out. actors exactly yeah <laughs> so up until just a couple of years ago there were talks of a remake of little shop these talks come up every few years um in early 2020 it was reported that the remake would star taron egerton as seymour and the guy who played um like Elton John, right? He played Elton John. He plays. He's in the oh, Kingsman yeah. movies. He's good. Okay. You know, I don't. I assume he can sing. Um, uh, I think. Does he sing his own voice in Rocket Man? I can't remember. Um, uh, Scarlett Johansson was uh, going to be Audrey, which I know she can sing, uh, but she's got a very different voice than Ellen Green. A very mm-hmm. raspy voice, very deep yeah. voice, uh, and Billy Porter as the voice of Audrey too. I was going to say, I could see Billy Porter. I could definitely see Billy Porter as Audrey too. Um, Greg Berlanti was attached to direct. uh, And at the time he never officially signed on. I don't think, but Chris Evans was in talks to play the dentist, which is bizarre (laughs) casting, but I could see it. I mean, Chris Evans can be very, very funny. I mean, just look at him in like Scott Pilgrim. Uh, I don't doubt him anymore. He, he throws himself into anything. Yeah. He's he's great. Uh, But as of May, 2021, the project had been postponed indefinitely. I'm Mm -hmm. sure it was one of the ones that it was a victim of, the pandemic i i imagine a lot of movies got scrapped during that uh and and i think that's kind of a good thing though honestly i i think the songs here are incredible and they're a big part of why this movie works so well but it does have other charms that i think could be lost in a remake uh one of which is the cast i i, I think egerton is great i think scarjo is great but there's something a little more hollywood about them than rick moranis and ellen green you yeah. know plus we all know that if there was a remake audrey too would be all CGI. That's yeah. true. Right? Yeah. It, I'm sure it would be. And the Audrey 2 puppet is a major piece of the overall puzzle of what makes Little Shop so damn good, I think. So I don't think, I, 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 I really imagine it. I could, I couldn't. I, yeah. Like, how do you do that? Like, what's the point? Like, like some things, I don't know. I guess this is part of getting old, guys, that, that you start to be like, what was wrong with my version of this? But uh, even this is like, I watched it this time and I don't know. Maybe kids these days would disagree, but I'm like, there's nothing that's aged really. The no, the fact that the puppet is still physically there, like we talked about it even in the last movie, and just like it just there's something better about the physical thing actually yeah. being a part of this. And uh it nothing seems dated really. Yeah. It just I mean it seems As like it's it said at a certain time, sure. I was about to like, say with it with it being kind of a period piece and the way Frank Oz exactly. shot it, it yeah. gives it that timeless quality. It yeah. it really does. It really does. It it, it makes me th- another one that would actually maybe make a double good double feature, Roger Rabbit's the same way. Yeah. Uh, Roger is. Rabbit is yes a product of the 80s but set in the 40s. You know a couple a couple of the people a couple of people in the cast are in Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah uh, no I don't see any reason I, I i just i just hate the idea what are you gonna well, do well here's the, the thing better i don't if know this yeah. ever if this does ever get remade and it probably will one day it probably will uh the original will still always exist that's, that's true. true that's all you got to remember <laughs> if yeah. it just because a remake comes out doesn't mean that you can't ever watch the original again you don't have to watch uh, the remake dude, at all i mean <laughs> I, I i went through all this in my head when i was reading about these these casting ideas for the remake and i was like you know the beautiful part is is that maybe remakes make people who would not have bothered with the movie beforehand take a look at it yeah and maybe. uh maybe down the line they'll go back and be like i want to see the earlier version which honestly probably is the the reason that i've ever 
besides the fact that it showed up on Joe Bob, it would have been the only reason I would have watched the, the original. original. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm with you. Well, that's it for this episode of Cinema Shock Roulette, uh, which what that means, guys, is that next week on the show, we are starting a brand new series, a uh, another long form series that's going to last us the whole summer. Forever. Basically, for the rest of uh, till, one of us probably... will be dead before this series ends. <laughs> it's really not that long because he hasn't. You got to tune in. You don't know which one of us is going to die first. <laughs> he hasn't made that many movies, honestly. I don't for, even for know. such a long career. I hope but it's not it, me, but, it could but be. yeah, I think this will last us until probably the end of August or something I'm like that. So. <laughs> oh, really? I Are see. We... I was my money was on Justin, honestly. No, okay. Yeah. Well, no, you're probably I, you right. <laughs> But to be fair, like I've got a lot working against me. I, I could very easily croak. Tell all your friends, listen to Cinema Shock. A person will die before this series is over. <laughs> anyway, our next series is going to be on James Cameron. So we're going to be talking about uh, James Cameron, starting with The Terminator. We're not going to do Piranha 2. Uh, I might watch Piranha 2, but he has basically disowned that movie and does not personally consider it part of his filmography. Uh, but we will talk. We'll, we'll cover it, but we're going to talk in depth about Terminator 2 because I feel like, a, as he does, that's when his career truly got started. And we're going to go all the way through uh, Avatar, which the new trailer for Avatar 2 just came out uh, you know, not too long ago. And looks amazing honestly i think it looks pretty incredible. it looks cool i have no idea what the fuck it's about it doesn't matter it, it's got those blue people in it they're but. selling you on the visuals on this first trailer but yeah so we're going to be talking about james cameron's entire career minus the um documentaries and imax underwater documentaries we're not going to be doing that but yeah. his, his regular theatrical releases we're going to be covering not all of the them. one where he goes down to the bottom of the the trench no i mean you can watch it if you want they're kind of hard to find Mm. honestly they're they're kind of hard to find streaming and stuff so uh if you want to watch them go ahead if you want to do a little extra bonus uh homework but we're not going to do honest, you sound kind of an asshole about it <laughs> <laughs> i'm just getting in i'm just getting in the james cameron headspace listen <laughs> that's right there's no, there's no prizes or anything you don't you don't get bonus points here Gary. <laughs> uh, anyway so if you guys want to watch along with us Watch The Terminator between now and our next episode. Uh, you can find it streaming pretty much anywhere. I mean, all of James Cameron's movies are going to be pretty easy to find. Although Terminator is surprisingly hard to find a decent Blu-ray of, but you can stream it pretty easily, rent it or whatever. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that's next week. Head to cinemashock.net to find all of our episodes, links to our merch, links to our Discord, uh, links to all of our social media and every episode that we've ever done on there. Where can you guys be found on the internet? I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis, and if you want to hear me talk more about Star Trek, check out my podcast, Computer Resume Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we are covering the entire franchise in chronological order. I've had some fun guests so far, and looks like it's going to be more of the same from here on out. So uh, you can reach that show at Computer Resume on all of the socials. And as I mentioned, I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. And D and D Beyond. I was. Do you, you use Letterboxed? Uh, occasionally, seldom, <laughs> but I do. I do have one. Yes, I've seen Gary using it a little bit more. It needs to be updated. Gary's been using it a little bit more lately. Oh, I've been, I've been, I've been trying, um, yeah. trying to keep up with it. I saw so. you log in. Um, the little girl who lived down the lane. Yeah, like yeah, that. And, that so, uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I still got some more on my list. I gotta, I gotta log, but 
again that's that's for next week's episode so uh i am matt this is gary horn and uh that's where you can find me on all the stuff i do i I do cinema shock stuff at cinema underscore shock (laughs) (laughs) there um I'm going to try to get my wrestling stuff started back up at TIPW show. It's this is Wait, pro wrestling. Yeah. You're still doing plenty of stuff with the NWA though. And I am still doing a lot with the NWA and it's been keeping me busy trying to get back to like my stuff though. Yeah. 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 Like, mm. uh, that, that I could do stuff with anyway, at TIPW you're just, show, you're just, you're froggy. If you want to learn about pro wrestling, that's where you go. We're going to help you out because we're going to have the history podcast coming back. Well, I am at Justin underscore Bishop. And uh, as we mentioned, you can follow us at cinema underscore shock. Uh, That's on Twitter, Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on discord, all that stuff until next week. May the wings of Liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other. I'm sorry, Johnny. I'm just so sorry. I never meant to hurt you. I never meant to hurt anyone. It's just that somehow It makes things happen. Terrible things. Well, I guess I should have stopped when I found out what it lived on. But it was cute and harmless. And we started doing business and making money. And you liked me. Oh, Johnny. You're the most wonderful person that ever lived. We're going to get those keys. And everything will be okay somehow. You'll see. I was really hoping for a musical number. I, you know, trust me, I, I thought about it. I Suddenly about, Johnny. Like, some, something along the mean line green of like, Johnny, Johnny from outer and space. the keys. He sure does look like plant food to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs>